You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Lord, you reveal yourself in this place of worship. You reveal yourself in our lives in so many amazing ways. God's revealed himself in my life through this congregation, through the the people who gather here and, and worship and know him. He, he started doing that 19 years ago when I first landed here uh, to take a new job at Microsoft, and this became my place of worship, my community. And I was just a brand-new baby Christian at the time, and uh, I needed a lot of help trying to figure out how you walk with him. And I had people around me here who, who helped me with that, who did that. There were people of influence. There were people who had a living relationship with the Lord. And I just heard Treyas talk about the same thing, talking about this hope. This hope and, and the way that it got fulfilled through the hands and hearts of people who also had hope in the living God. People who have a living relationship with him. And what a beautiful thing that is. You know, the, our theme verse for this whole year is that we have set our hope on the living God. And it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And it's the theme verse for this whole sermon series that George kicked off last week. Living God, living life. And he kicked it off. He opened up the book of Deuteronomy. And right there in the first chapter, we start seeing how this God reveals himself to his people. And he reveals himself in so many ways through, through worship, uh, through his pursuit of them, through his actions, his mighty powers and deeds. So it's a history book, but it's a worship book, but it's a theology book. Because you know what? That's all wrapped up together. Theology is when we are trying our best to try to understand what's going on in the reality of God. And this book helps us do that. And as George opened it up and we saw all these different pieces coming together, we saw uh, God plucking the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and rescuing them by these mighty powers, guiding them and being with them through the desert, showing him, speaking to them, and bringing them up to the edge of this promised land. So they're about to, just now, we're going to turn to the book of Deuteronomy 4, and he's just about to let them enter this promised land after all these years and do something that the world has never seen before. He's commanding them and bringing them to form a new people group, like a new nation, unlike one the world has ever seen before, because this is going to be a nation under the living God. That's what marks it. And so what we have here in our hands is not just a history book. It's, it's not just a theology or a worship book. It also is full of doxology, praise, teachings, law, history, and I think there's one more thing in it, too. It kind of sort of serves as a constitution, if you will, for this new people that's about to enter the land because he's telling them, this is how you're going to live. You need to do this. You better do this for your own good because this is what's going to make it work for you. This is what's going to make your life good. Here's my instructions to you. Cross into the river now and do this. And remember these words he's telling them. So, Let's keep this in mind as we read these words. Please stand with me. We're going to read uh, together. And uh, let's read page 141. We're going to read Deuteronomy 4. We're going to read verses 
5 through 8. And as we do so, we're going to listen to God's word to his loved ones. See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, I now teach you statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you are about to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I am setting before you today? This is the word of the Lord. Father God, may you make these words alive in our hearts and let them bring forth life abundantly. Amen. Please be seated. Well, like I said, this text also kind of serves as a constitution for the tribe of Israel as they prepare to set foot in the promised land of Canaan, pushing other tribes out of the way and forming a new nation. Now, for us, constitutional law is a hot topic. I know because just this week, the Supreme Court announced its docket for the new year, which they do the first week of October each year. And this time, it's a doozy. There's just about every hot-button issue in our country right now on their docket. Uh, There's cases on immigration, affirmative action, uh, how to fund health care, and the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act. And it shows us that no matter how good our Constitution is and uh, no matter how many lawyers we have, there's always a new controversy brewing. And we can't run a government without lawyers and laws. You can't do it. And in this country, we have good reason to be proud of the system because, after all, this Constitution, this was a watershed moment in human history. This created a new form of government unlike anything the world had seen. It created uh, one founded on the principle of utterly uh, attempting to maximize human liberty with justice for all. And it did this through the creation of a representative form of government with all these checks and balances. And it was, you know what, it was a step of faith. Because it was an experiment. Hadn't been tried quite this way before. Our system of justice is admired and attracts people from all over the world who want to create a better life for their families. That's a good thing. Our laws help us do that. But now if you turn the clock back 3,000 years, more than 3,000 years, to this time of the Exodus, the, the time of the Israelites wandering through the desert of Sinai, the time God spoke to them from Mount Horeb, the time that Moses uh, shared with them the commandments, and then also through the prophet Moses, God spoke these words that we just read today. He said, you must observe them diligently. But he goes on, he says, this shows wisdom and discernment to the peoples around you. You see, there's a blessing for the peoples around you when you know me and observe my law. And he goes on and says, for what other great nation 
has a God so near to them as our God is to us when we pray to him. And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances like these that I'm setting before you today? You see, because these are the people that heard the voice of God at the mountain. These are the people that saw his mighty powers. These are the people that, that rejoiced in the benefits of his outstretched arm that saved them. These people knew him. First person. That's what sets them apart. And that's what set the laws apart too. You would think that with God at the helm and these people with these laws in their hand that everything would have gone smoothly for them. And it didn't, did it? I mean, we know the rest of the story. They get into this promised land. They have the law. God's their God. And it, what happens? It doesn't quite go right. They mess it up. It gets bad. And then... We read the next chapters of all of these historical books of the Bible that follow Deuteronomy. And you know what happens after it gets bad? It gets worse. And, and, and you know what our, our solution to that is? Uh, write more laws. Well, this has already been going on in the Bible too because apparently the Ten Commandments of God weren't enough. Because by the time they even get up to the Jordan of River, what we read today, in the book of Deuteronomy, we now have been counted, the laws have been counted by the rabbis, and there are 613 specific commandments in these books of the Torah. 613 mitzvot, the, the Hebrew word for commandments. The rabbis taught them and administered them. And these cover everything from prayer and worship to marriage and family relationships, purity, agriculture, business, criminal actions. Even diet. It's all right there. And Deuteronomy is the book that recaps it all as the people set out to root down themselves in this land. So what we've seen is that God gives himself and then he gives the Ten Commandments and then the number of laws keeps growing. It's the same with us. We know it. It's the same with our Constitution. The number of laws keeps growing endlessly. Will there ever be an end to the law? How many, by the way, how many laws does it take to make a people righteous? How many lawyers? No, wait, stop right there. I am not going to tell the lawyer jokes today. Um, we have a rule in my house. Uh, my son is a law student right here across the street at the UW. And so we have a rule in my house that we don't tell lawyer jokes while we're wearing microphones. So <laughs> we, we have our own set of rules. But... It reminds me, because uh, for me, it's like my front yard. Here's why. Because the laws keep growing like weeds. And isn't that the problem with gardening? Uh, I mean, the weeds just, they keep coming back. It doesn't matter how good you are. They keep coming back. And not only that, but the shrubs keep needing pruning. And uh, I have to admit, uh, street appeal is not a spiritual gift of mine. There, yes, there has been testimony to that in, in my house. Uh, um, but I think maybe that's why, maybe that's why uh, gardening is the oldest profession. It is. That was Adam's job in the garden. See, he had a job before the fall, before things went bad. He had a job. He had a work to do in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that's part of what made him who he was. He had, because there was this built-in living relationship with the living God from the get-go. And that works. 
It's when that law, it's when we break down and, and when we, sin creeps into our lives and when the weeds creep into our lives, that's when it stops working. That's when we need the laws. And we do need them. But, but we realize that's not enough because that's not the way God set it up. It's not the way he, things started off that way. They keep growing. They keep multiplying like weeds. I mean, again, just look at this building across the street from us, this beautiful brand new building. Uh, it's named after William Gates Sr., who was a graduate of UW Law School in 1950. And that building is six stories high. It houses uh, 625,000 volumes of laws. It's also been recognized as the number one law librarianship program in the whole country. And guess what? It's not enough. Again, I, I know this again because my son, uh, he spends hours and hours online uh, searching out the legal databases to find what he needs. Because it's, it's just too big to do it any other way. We, we can't even figure out our own tax code. The IRS measures it at 3.4 million words. But the nonpartisan uh, tax foundation measures it at over 9 million words. Which one is right? Well, it depends. And these ever, these ever expanding laws then are a blessing. Yeah, they're a blessing for justice. But there's also a curse in it. Uh, because on the one hand, we have the freedom to write new laws. Hooray. And on the other hand, all of this freedom, it leads into problems uh, and mind-boggling complexity. And sometimes it even feels like it's getting in the way of justice because every time we create a law, it seems like at the same time we're creating either an unanticipated consequence or we're setting up a fence where maybe actually we didn't want the fence there. <laughs> Or we create a loophole that we didn't want a loophole there. The great uh, legal scholar, legal mind on this is W.C. Fields. If you remember him from a century ago, uh, from your history lessons this is, uh, he was a great entertainer and he was really famous for his wildlife, carousing, drinking, boozing, uh, womanizing, and just breaking the rules. Bad guy. And some of his friends caught him reading the Bible, and they were shocked. They said, W.C., what are you doing? He said, just looking for a loophole, just looking for a loophole. <laughs> well, you see the problem, don't you? Um, how come we can't fix it by focusing more minutely on the law? It doesn't seem to fix it. And Moses makes this crystal clear in Deuteronomy, because here he is handing off the law. And how does he do it? He does it by spending his whole sermon leading up to the law on the living relationship with the living God. Because that's the thing that people need to remember. What other nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And listen to what else he says. Same chapter. Right after the part we just read, he says this, Because the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will neither abandon you nor destroy you. He will not forget the covenant with your ancestors that he swore to them. For ask now about the former ages from the beginning of time, from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven. But when, even when Adam was created, ask about the beginning times, he says. 
And has anything so great as this ever been heard of? Has any people ever heard the voice of a God speaking out of the fire? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by terrifying displays of power, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. To you it was shown, so that you would acknowledge that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. This is the point of the law. To live in a living relationship with the living God. This gives the law integrity. This gives the law meaning. And this comes first. The Lord our God is near whenever we call to him. Has any great thing as this ever happened before? You see, ultimately, it's not about the law. It's about the lawgiver. And... There's a symbol of that carved into the stone at the very apex of our Supreme Court building, above those eight white marble columns on the east facade at the centerpiece above that. What do you see there? Moses holding the two tablets. See, because that's what gives the law integrity. It's that relationship with the living Lord, the lawgiver. That's what it's about. It's not about the focus on the law. It's where the law comes from. Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes said this in 1932 as he set the cornerstone for that building. This is what he said. The Republic endures and this is the symbol of its faith. He knew that that that's where justice comes from. That's true. And our whole system is built on faith. John Adams knew it. John Adams said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Morals and laws become meaningless games if not built on a foundation of faith. Living faith. The most beautiful literature uh, example of this, I think, is, in in my humble opinion, the greatest novel ever written, uh, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And he's got these three brothers, Ivan, Dmitri, and Alosia. And it's the atheist brother that speaks this truth. Ivan, the atheist, he says, if there be no God, then everything's permissible. That's true. But then it's his younger brother, Elosha, who carries it to its logical conclusion and takes the next step and says, ah, but if there be no resurrection, everything's lawful. That's what makes it stick. That's what gives us its, its power. That's what gives it life. Otherwise, it's dead, the law's dead, and you and I are dead in our sins. But we're not because of him and his resurrection.
You know, maybe that's why Jesus kept getting into so much trouble. You know, people kept trying to trap Jesus in the law. You know, they wanted to get they wanted to get a handle on him somehow. This guy, he was hard to get a handle on, and so they kept trying to trap him in the law. And yeah, as long as they kept doing that and trying to judge him on the basis of their law, they never figured out who he was. It's the wrong game plan. I mean, look at the example. Look at what happened when they brought him the woman caught in adultery. It set up a trap for him because here they are. They confront him with the law and they say, what are you going to do? I mean, this is a no-win situation. What's he going to do? Is he going to command them to stone this woman to death right before his very eyes? That's the law. Is he going to break the law? What kind of leader is this? A lawbreaker? What does he do? He bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Now, what do you suppose he was writing there? Huh? I've always wondered about that. I don't know. But this one thing I know. Whatever happened there, I know that he revealed the heart of God. There was an encounter there that changed everything. There was an encounter with the living God that led that crowd to disperse in peace. The woman to be forgiven and sent on her way. It was that encounter. Because nothing else works than that encounter. Otherwise, we're trapped. You know, the other guy who was trapped, it was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And you see what's going on here. This man was so focused on his own morality he was so focused on trying to figure out his own lock, rule code, moral code, and understanding the game plan that he didn't even realize who he was talking to. He missed it. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit like that too because I pay attention to my morality. Actually, I have to. I mean, it's an occupational hazard. Uh, that's why everybody laughed when Becky introduced me as a professor of uh, ethics. And, you know, and then it wasn't just that. I mean, I'm doing the most foolish thing in the world. I'm teaching uh, business ethics, right? So I'm going to be responsible for teaching people how to do everything right, as if I know. And not only that, to make it worse, I'm teaching Christian business ethics. So I think I'm doing just about the most foolish thing there is. But yet, it's foolishness for Christ, isn't it? Because I know that the thing that really makes those laws count and the way we live them out is by having a living relationship with God. I'm still that way, though, because I do still think about my morality. And, you know, pollsters measure this. They've, they've measured the morality of our population. And the last time I saw this measured, it turned out that 90% of people think they're more moral than average. Do the math. And it reminds me of Lake Wobegon. 
where all the men are good looking and all the women are strong and all the children are above average. Uh, yet that's trying to look at it from the point of view of statistics and laws and rules and measuring ourselves up against those standards. And we realize how that breaks down. We've seen it. And I hate to break it to you, but if that's your approach to Christianity is to try to measure yourself against the standards um, or to interpret Christians by measuring yourself against standards and rules, then I hate to break it to you, but uh, that's not going to work. Uh, because the Bible's not reducible to a rule book. It's not a moral code. And Jesus is not reducible to a moral code. He didn't come to hand us off a moral code. He came to save and seek the lost. He came to preach the recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the release to the captives, and declare the year of the Lord's favor. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to save us. And to die so that we might live abundantly. I met someone uh, just recently, actually a student in, in my classes, who has discovered this. He's about my age. He's had just about 30 years in business. He's an executive in the radio industry. And three years ago, he met the Lord. And he said yes to Jesus. He said, Bruce, let me tell you, I had... I was living in so much tension. I had not just the business responsibilities, the profit and loss, the, the legal codes there, the legal codes in my industry, the board of directors to please, the investors to please. I said I had all these personal standards that I was trying to live up to. And when I said yes to Jesus, it was like I realized I had built an iron cage. And I was worshiping the iron cage that I lived in. And Jesus opened the door and let me out. I have experienced such complete freedom. I love being in business. Every time I go into a meeting or I go into the boardroom, Jesus comes with me. Every single decision we make, I want to know what Jesus thinks about it. This man has experienced freedom. This man has discovered a living relationship with God. Well... That's the point, isn't it? It's not whether you're in the 10th percentile or the 90th percentile on the morality survey. The point is, have you found a living relationship with Jesus Christ? And I can tell you one thing about that. You can rest in 100% assurance that he's there for you and will do the work for you in that relationship if you just say yes to him. That's all you have to do is trust him and say yes to him, let him do the rest. Let him into your heart. His law of love is the only law that makes life worth living. And that's why he taught the law this way. He said, reading from the Gospel of John, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's why we're all here, because someone in our lives has known that law by heart. Someone in our lives has had a living relationship with the living Lord, otherwise we wouldn't have ended up here, know how. And 
a lot of us have discovered that for ourselves. And that makes us people of influence also in the lives of those around us. That's how God works. That's how God saves the world. It's through that living relationship. When we walk out of these doors today, we are walking out as God's plan to save the world. That's how he does it, is through people, through relationships. Not through people hitting people with laws, but people who understand who he is. That's his plan for us to become, you and me, persons of influence. And no matter how amazing, mysterious, paradoxical as that sounds, the law of Jesus is the law that he writes on our hearts. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord God, thank you for the gift of this law and the way that it reveals you. And for the amazing thing that you can reveal yourself by doing something to us that changes us and gives us life. What, Lord, what an amazing gift. We praise you for it. We thank you for it. We pray that it grow in abundance. And we pray that you use it in this city of yours. In Christ's name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.